Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Dr. Jamie Fraser. Jamie is currently a curator for the ancient Levant and Anatolia at the British Museum. He's worked on archaeological projects in Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kashmir, Greece, Cambodia, Australia and the Solomon Islands. He received his PhD from the University of Sydney in 2016 and in 2018 he published the book Dolmens in the Levant about megalithic tomb monuments from the Bronze Age. He was awarded the G. Ernest Wright Award for the Best Archaeological Publication. Jamie currently directs a British Museum dig investigating a four and a half thousand year old olive oil factory at Kerbet Goslan in Jordan. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Fiona. It's a pleasure. I'm going to start with a really easy question. What made you want to be an archaeologist? <laughs> well, the very, very first books that I started to read when I was a kid were on long family trips. My parents got really sick with me teasing my younger sisters in the car. So they found from a secondhand bookshop a copy of one of the Dr. Doolittle books. And I just fell in love with this new world. Now, Dr. Doolittle, of course, isn't an archaeologist. He's a sort of a naturalist who goes around talking to animals. But I guess from that really early age of about uh, five or six, it made me realize the value of being an ist, you know, someone who studies something for the sake of studying something, that things can be in inherently intrinsically interesting for their own purpose. So the ist that I was actually going to become was a geologist. But when I went to sign up at the University of Sydney when I was looking at my undergraduate courses, the desk in the big uh, hall where you go to register for the geology had a sign saying, uh, gone for lunch back in 10 minutes. And I waited for half an hour, then started wandering through the other tables, started talking to the person behind the archaeology desk, an archaeologist called uh, Roland Fletcher, who works in Cambodia. And he started telling me the sorts of things that we would be studying if I enrolled in archaeology. And well, I have no regrets at all. That's a fantastic story. I didn't know that. And so did you work with Roland in Cambodia then? That was the very first uh, overseas dig I ever did in Angkor. It was astonishing. Because that was actually my next question. What was your first dig or where was your first dig? So that's pretty cool for a first dig. Well, my first excavation was actually in Sydney on a historical site. So we're talking sort of 1800s in an old sugar factory where in year 10, so when you're about 16 years old, some schools in Australia uh, want you to do a week or two weeks of work experience in an industry that you're interested in. And I was kind of still interested in, although I was going to be an, a geologist, it was fun to do some archaeology at the same time and managed to talk my way onto a dig as a 16-year-old on this, this old sugar factory in historical Sydney, which was pretty cool. My first dig in Sydney was a convict toilet. <laughs> the best find from the toilet, though. <laughs> I know. It's just like I went on to more glamorous things, I'm pleased to say. Okay, so where did dolmens in the Levant come in then? How did you get into dolmens? So dolmens are monumental megalithic tomb structures. So the word dolmen actually comes from an old Breton, old sort of Western French word, which literally translates as stone table. And that's what they look like. It's sort of vertical slab, vertical slab with a horizontal roof slab across the top. And dolmens are found in their thousands in the southern Levant, particularly in Jordan. And I was on another excavation up a side wadi, a sort of wadi being a, a steep-sided valley in the Middle East, um, and a wadi called the Wadi Rayam, which is a beautiful wadi. And in the spring, it's just carpeted in wildflowers. And on one of the days off from this dig, I got our um, Bedouin sort of fix-it man, who is running the sort of the logistics of the dig, to drop me off at the top of the wadi and I was going to walk all the way down back to the dig house over the over the Friday. 
and it was wonderful. But as I did, I passed this field of dolmens that maybe, well, it turns out that there are over 100 there because I went back and surveyed them as my PhD. But I wanted to know more about them. And I think like any good PhD topic, it's much more meaningful if it's you sort of stumble upon it yourself and you've got a, a, a drive to learn more. And then suddenly you realize you're doing all the research that you have to do, but you're doing it because you're interested in it, not because you should be doing it. And what date are they, generally? Well, well, this is a bit contested. It depends on which scholar you ask. But most scholars now now generally agree that they date to a period called the Early Bronze Age 1 period, which dates to sort of roughly about 37, 3800 BC to about 3000 BC. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, so I won't let you talk any more about dolmens just it's in a moment. Probably a good thing. But let's come to your current job at the British Museum, because is that the dream job for any archaeologist? Do you have the dream job that everybody wants? I love my job. I, I really like being the curator for the Levant in Anatolia. It is so much fun. And what do you actually do? What generally not pre-COVID times, say? So being a curator, it's actually, I like it because it involves a whole bunch of different things. So, of course, one of those things is uh, working out uh, what sort of exhibitions are possible from the collection or loaning in from other museum collections to tell narratives, to tell stories about the past using objects to the general public. And that's fascinating. Another one is kind of just researching the collections, seeing what objects are in the collections and how, by research, using scientific methods or historical methods, we can learn more about them and so learn more about the people who used them and made them and what they who they represent. And there's also at the British Museum um, a strong contingent of doing ongoing field research, which is why I can still work as an archaeologist in field and then come back to a museum and, and continue to do museum stuff as well. Really is the best job ever. So I think we might be ready for our first question, actually, from one of our WHE readers, and it's Karen Phillips. And she has two questions. And the first is, what do you find most fascinating, frustrating, humorous or ludicrous in your duties as a curator at the British Museum? Good question, Karen. What I find endlessly fascinating as a museum curator is the fact that people think, and I used to think, that a museum collection is kind of in stasis. It's kind of a collection of inert, dusty objects that are hallowed and that sit on the shelves as these kind of fixed points. And then nothing is fixed in a museum storeroom because every single object has the potential to tell you new new stuff if you look at it in a different way. And what I find most fascinating about working in a museum is walking into one of those storerooms because it's the place is alive. The, the shelves buzz and hum with the potential of finding out new stuff. I can't go, I literally cannot go into a storeroom without smiling because it is such an active place in that regard. And that, that's what I just find super fascinating. And do they store, because obviously there's a huge amount of objects that we don't see on display. Is that actually stored at the British Museum or do they have an off-site facility? I can't remember. Uh, the British Museum has most of its objects, the collection stored on-site at the British Museum itself in Bloomsbury in London, but there are a couple of off-site uh, areas as well. So it's kind of split. And what what's your favourite object, say, that you found in the storerooms that that you suddenly you fell on and went oh my god did you have one have you had one of those moments yeah okay there's i'm getting i'm getting a bit uh, off karen's question but i'll come back to your question in a minute karen and I'll, yeah sorry karen. object question <laughs> on my very very first week as a british museum curator when i really didn't know what was in the storerooms or anything a wonderful turkish scholar 
man called uh, Hassan Pekka turned up wanting to see a statue that was down in the stone storeroom of a Hittite goddess called Kubaba. I mean, I didn't really know about this statue, so I had to look up where it was and all this sort of stuff. But I said, okay, no problem. We can go down and have a look. So I took uh, Dr. Pecker down into this kind of cavernous Victorian uh, brick vaulted stone storeroom. And we found this statue of, of the goddess. And what it is, it's a carved basalt column. So imagine sort of if you're hugging a tree, well, imagine hugging a round column of black basalt stone. And on one side, carved in relief, is the goddess Kababa, and on the back is an inscription in an ancient Hittite hieroglyphic script called Luian. The problem is, the statue is cut off at the head. So we basically imagine the, the goddess from her neck down. And we got down there, and this scholar, this, this Turkish visitor, just started bouncing on the balls of his feet like a, like a schoolboy. He was saying, this is it, this is it, this is the statue. And it was amazing, because this statue had come into the British Museum in the 18 in 1879 and come from a site called Karkamish uh, in eastern Turkey. Karkamish actually lies on the modern border between Turkey and Syria. And before World War One, it was the site that T. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, was digging with, um, with Leonard Woolley. But from that site, recently, Hassan Pekka and um, some colleagues in Italy have been working and they found the long lost head of this statue. And, and Hassan had come all the way to London to look at the base of the statue just to make sure it was the right one. And that moment of clarity, of certainty, it was a privilege to be part of that, seeing Hassan bounce on his feet when he saw the statue and just knew that it was the one. It was really cool. Well, that's, that is so exciting. So have they been reunited now? Well, the head of the statue is in the Gaziantep Museum in Turkey and the base of the statue is in the British Museum. Uh, but we're working on a project to sort of do this digitally. That is really exciting though, isn't it? Yeah, it's really the, Okay, so back to Karen's question, second part of her question. It's quite long, but she says, what advances would you like to see in the preservation of artefacts in general? She understands that there are eons of history that cannot be displayed or truly investigated because of lack of space, finances, and even personnel, and thinks that it must be even more heartbreaking for those in your position to look but not touch at the source. But it doesn't sound actually like that is the case, Jamie. Well, for the, in terms of preserving and conserving, I mean, Karen is absolutely right that there are a lot of frustrations there. And I think well, one of the reasons why we're not allowed to touch, and as curators we're not allowed to touch, and, and certainly the general public, a lot of objects, is because, of course, we're all dirty, grubby, oily people, and we leave that dirty, grubby, oily residues on the artifacts. And you do that, you know, if one person touches one object every day in a museum gallery over the course of a year and the course of a decade and the course of a century, suddenly that changes chemically and visually how that object uh, is. So, of course, we don't touch for that reason. But, of course, objects are tactile. They're made by people. They're handled by people. And so not to engage with an object by touch is really missing out on one of the most fundamental ways to understand something as a thing. So, you know, should there be some breakthrough advance in conservation that Karen's describing, I hope it would be some way of being able to, you know, to prevent those build up of oily residues where we don't have to wear gloves but can actually do that without leaving this behind so that we can open up objects to, to sort of more handling for that sort of thing for particularly for the general public. I think that would be great. We have another question actually for you from Alexei in St. Petersburg in Russia and he asks this is quite a specific question what do you think about the Queen of the Night of the British Museum? Who is she? He's got Lilith, Ishtar or Ereshkigal. 
So what are your thoughts on that, Jamie? Could you put this in context for people who don't know what he's talking about? Sure. Alexei has really uh, gone straight to the heart of one of the big mysteries in the Middle East collection, is who is the Queen of the Night? Now, the Queen of the Night refers to quite a remarkable object. It's a terracotta plaque. So it's about 50 centimetres high and just under 40 centimetres wide, so a sort of rectangular plaque. Uh, it's on display in the Mesopotamia Gallery. It was made in the old Babylonian period, so about 1800 1750 BC. And what it depicts in high relief is a goddess, or possibly a goddess. But certainly what it depicts is a naked uh, lady, bare-breasted, so definitely a lady, standing front on, uh, raising her hands. And in, in each hand, she holds a circular a, a ring and a rod. These are symbols of um, divine measurement. Often they're shown as the god giving the king these sort of tools for building temples and things like this. On her head is a, a headdress with four pairs of horns uh, surmounted by a disc. She's got taloned feet that stand on top of a couple of lions. Now, Karen before asked what one of the most frustrating things about working in the museum is, and I'll come back to the Queen of the Night in just a second, because this comes back to this. I find one of the most frustrating things, or perhaps the most frustrating thing, is that not everything, but some things in the British Museum were acquired historically off the market. That means we don't know where they are from. They've lost their archaeological context. And that means they're divorced from some of the most fundamental knowledge that we would have were we to find them in the proper tomb or temple or palace or wherever they would, would come from. So if I'm researching something, often you hit a sort of cul-de-sac because when that, that provenance knowledge is gone, it's sort of so deeply frustrating because you can't go the next step. Now, the Queen of the Night plaque is one of those objects that was acquired off the market. Uh, back in the 1930s from memory and so we don't know where it's from so the question of identity who is this woman is an open question because if we found this in a tomb or a temple or a sort of votive offering there may well be you know for mesopotamian texts or other iconographies that tells us or that would help bolster the argument one way or the other the problem is we just don't know and it's such a singular piece that it's difficult to make comparisons with other people. There are about three theories and Alexei has, has really summarized those very well. One of the earliest is that it's not depicting a goddess, it's depicting a demon or a female demon called Lilitu or Lilith. This comes from a sort of an old Sumerian myth. The problem with this theory, and it's one of the earliest theories that was proposed, is that demons aren't goddesses, but there are some several divine attributes of the Queen of the Night. So it really does suggest she's a goddess, particularly the fact that she's got horns on her crown. Only only the gods and goddesses had horns on their crowns, which is a sign of divinity. And so I think that theory doesn't quite hold water. So if we say, okay, she's a goddess, then the question is, well, which goddess? There are Mesopotamians and the Babylonians worshipped a pantheon of many, many different gods and goddesses. So, you know, there are several candidates to choose from. The main goddess is Inanna, uh, or Ishtar in the Babylonian and Anna in the Sumerian. She's the goddess of sex and love and war and all that sort of stuff. And it's very, it is probably or quite likely Ishtar. Also, one of Ishtar's symbols is lions. And the fact that the Queen of the Night is standing naked on two lions might be sort of indicating that, is, that it is Inanna. But the third theory, and I think this theory, I, I personally agree with this one, and it's to do with the colour of the plaque. So when you walk through the British Museum, or any museum really, you see all these statues and reliefs and things, and they all look quite bland, you know, classical statues being white, or Assyrian reliefs being brown, like this Queen of the Night plaque is very brown. But of course, 
in the ancient periods, these were very vividly, brightly coloured. And we know through analysis of the surface of the Queen of the Night that there are residue pigments showing that this was once highly coloured. The goddess herself would have been coloured red and the, her crown and her, her ring symbols that she's holding would have been either painted yellow or perhaps more likely covered in gold foil. But the background is black and that's why she's actually called Queen of the Night. And that to me suggests and to many other people that she's actually the elder sister of Ishtar, the goddess Eresh Kigal, the goddess of the underworld. And this is actually something to do with the underworld, possibly a mortuary context. The fact that her, she's got wings, like many of the goddesses, but Ishtar's always shown with her wings out. The Queen of the Night's shown with her wings furled, which is really unusual. So I suspect for that also, it, it, it suggests that we're actually looking at the Queen of the Night. But basically, Alexa, your guess is as good as mine. Thank you, Jamie. While I could stay for questions about the British Museum for a long time, I want to move on to your digs because it's actually one that you've been running, I think, on behalf of the British Museum in, in Jordan, this olive oil factory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this site is called Herbert Umul Goslan, and that's Arabic for the ruins of the mother of the gazelles, which I love. And it's a site that really shouldn't exist. And it shouldn't exist because it's really small. It's only about 100 metres by about 50 metres, less than 0.4 hectares, a teeny tiny site. And any sort of archaeological survey wandering over the landscape would see this pimple on the landscape and they might call it a village if they're being generous or probably a farmstead or something like that. The reason why it shouldn't exist is that because it sits on the top of a knoll where it drops off very, very sharply into a, a steep-sided Wadi Valley below. And the one point that you can actually walk onto the site is defended by a two rows of massive megalithic stone block fortification wall, or very ad hoc sort of enclosure wall, that actually surrounds the entire site. And you open a textbook about this period, it's called the Early Bronze Four period, so we're talking about 2,500 to 2,000 BCE. You open a, a book to this period, and this period is known as a period of urban collapse, sort of the initial fluorescence of early cities that build up to this period, they all get abandoned by about 2500 BC and people disperse into the rural landscape. And any textbook says, well, people disappeared off into the rural landscape and practiced subsistence farming until wacko urbanism recovered 600 years later, 700 years later, and, you know, we're into the Middle Bronze Age. But why, and this is my, the main question driving this excavation, why build such a monumental fortification wall around such a teeny tiny site. And there are several sites that, that have this feature and no one's really pulled at the threads of this to work out what's going on. And our theory, I run this excavation with a colleague of mine at the British Museum from their Department of Scientific Research, Dr. Carolyn Cartwright. Our theory is that this isn't a village site. This isn't even a site in which people are living. It's a specialized olive oil production site. And what happens today in Jordan, in Israel and in Lebanon and in Palestine and all the Levantine countries in the autumn or the fall, so we're talking October, November, that is the olive harvest time. And in that period, people come into their olive groves, harvest their olives, take them to a central olive harvesting factory that presses the olives into oil. And in ancient times, those oil jars were often cached or cached together in one place for the oil and the, the water from the juice to separate so you could then decant off a pure oil. And we think that this 
Umulgozlan is one of these oil processing sites where people come come up to this. It's up in the uh, in the uplands in the east uh, eastern escarpment of the Jordan Rift Valley. So people come up to these areas where olives are growing. They harvest all their orchards. They press the fruit. They store the oil in this defended compound for about a month, maybe, while the oil and the water kind of separate. They decant the pure oil off, and then they disperse the oil jars into the local communities and disappear, and they don't come back for another sort of 10 and a half, 11 months. And the archaeological and the archaeobotanical and all the other scientific data that we're collecting seems to support this theory. And I love this theory because it's exactly what happens today, just with the modern olive oil factories use mechanised ways of extracting the oil, but it's exactly the same sort of system. And the last time I was digging there, which was November 2019, just before COVID, of course, the modern farmers were doing all their olive harvest in the background while we were digging this ancient factory. And then we actually went and visited a couple of the modern factories doing exactly what we were seeing in the archaeological record. And I love that because those hills kind of resonate with this, these echoes of this, um, this olive horticultural industry that's been going on fairly unchanged for millennia. There's something to be said, isn't there, about traditions that have not changed for thousands of years. I I do love that. Yeah, and I think it really underscores how absolutely entwined olive oil production and and the rise of urban societies um, are in this part of the world. You cannot understand Levantine societies without understanding the role of, of olive oil production. So there's no chance that it went a little bit earlier and went with the early Bronze Age cities? Do you think it dated after the collapse? So this particular site, so in the southern Levant, uh, the first cities start to emerge around about sort of 30, 3,100, 3,000 BC, give or take. And what I mean by a city is just a large site in the in the landscape, usually controlled by a large defensive wall in which civil authority and religious authority was held. So you might get sort of pseudo palaces and temples and things like that. And each of these cities in the southern Levant, one by one, started to be abandoned from around about 27, 2600 BC, although the process takes a while. I mean, I kind of think of it as I'm sitting up in the, the International Space Station looking down on the Levant at night and one by one, gradually, the lights go out until the whole place has gone dark. It's not like the zombie apocalypse. This doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of a couple of centuries. And then there's a period of about 500, 600 years where there aren't any of these large sites inhabited before they slowly get refounded. And this site, Kerbet Goslan, really does happen in that so-called dark age. We know that because of the ceramics that we're getting out of it. They are all ceramics that date to this period. And we've, we've got some samples ready for some radiocarbon dating, but there's no doubt in my mind that, that the dates will come back for this period. So we're talking sort of 2600 to 2000 BC. Where in that bracket they'll come back, I don't know yet, but they do, they will date from this period of urban recession, urban collapse. That's fascinating because it shows that people are getting together again and organising themselves, aren't they, if they have built this and then different communities are using it. Yeah, absolutely. What it's showing, I think, is a really complex rural response to this urban recession. And it's showing that there is a a resilient rural economy which underscores the kind of larger urban fluorescences we get in the southern Levant. And that's really important because... When cities get refounded in the southern Levant, they eventually turn into what has been known in the historical record as the Canaanite civilization. And of course, 
what we're looking at in this period of, of collapse, this period of urban recession, and the role of olive horticulture, is I think we're looking at the maintenance of those economic sinews upon which these later Canaanite civilizations become fleshed. We can't understand how later urbanism works without, un without understanding the fundamental components upon which it's built. And horticultural industries is one of those things. It's interesting, though, that they felt they had to defend it, you know, that they had such a big wall defending it. I that, wonder why that was. That's a really fascinating issue because, of course, if they're defending it, who are they defending it from? I mean, these defences aren't like the city defences. They're not, they wouldn't withstand a siege. I mean, they wouldn't withstand three men with a spear, frankly. Is it more a, a symbol of ownership? You know, you've got six young guys sort of playing snake on their mobile phone on the standing on top of the, um, the defence system while everyone else is off in the orchards harvesting the, the olive fruit. Not so much to defend it from people wanting to steal stuff, but just so that, you know, if there are strangers around, they'll go, no, no, nothing to see here, keep moving on. Or is it more that it's more an echo of what was done? If in the, in the early Bronze Age before this, people built walls and so around things they want to protect, so we're still seeing that practice done simply because it was always done. And it's kind of a, an appendix, or, you know, a, something that happens by habit almost. Don't really know. But it's fascinating that they did because there was a lot of effort that went into that, a lot of manpower. I know. We really need that time machine, don't we? Oh. We need to just pop back and see what was going on. Life would be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's great. And the other dig I wanted to talk to you about as well, which I believe that started as part of the Iraq Emergency Heritage Scheme from the British Museum. And that's at the site of Tello in southern Iraq. And I've read that it actually has changed the understanding of Sumerian civilization from the new discoveries there. So could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Sure. So I've been on this dig, uh, but it's not my project. This is run by a guy called Dr. Sebastian Ray, who's the curator for Mesopotamia at the British Museum. And Sebastian is one of the people at the BM who is running, as you quite rightly say, the Iraq Emergency Heritage Training Scheme. That's a really incredible scheme. What it does is that it takes over several years a kind of a group of Iraqi archaeologists and museum professionals and it brings them across to London and presents some training and workshop on issues relating to museology and artifact conservation and photography and all this sort of stuff. And then everybody goes back to Iraq and digs one of two excavation sites. One's up in Iraqi Kurdistan and this other one of Tello, which is in southern Iraq sort of in a province called Nasiriya, between Baghdad and Basra. And then the excavations occur, and they are genuine research on excavations, but they're also used as a training scheme to train some of the Iraqi archaeologists and Iraqi colleagues in matters of field research, field conservation, all this sort of stuff, field recording. And that's a really positive program, I think, because it's developing and instilling a lot of uh, skills that is necessary to, to help develop and preserve uh, the tremendous uh, cultural legacy in Iraq. Tello itself is a massive site that was founded in the Sumerian civilization. So the Sumerian civilization arises on the floodplains of southern Iraq in the, in the third millennium BC. Um, it's one of the first civilizations, or the first one really, that develops a writing system. This is the system of cuneiform. And we know that uh, Tello uh, was one of the religious capitals of this site, perhaps one of the holiest cities of this civilization. So imagine 
in 10,000 years starting, say, to dig the Vatican City as one of the holiest places for you know the Roman Catholic Christian world. And that's kind of what Tello is. It's just for the Sumerian Empire. And the British Museum under Dr. Ray um, with our Iraqi colleagues has been digging one of the, the temples there. It's a temple to the god Ningirsu. And the actual, the ancient name for Tello is Girsu. And this is this is really one of the main pilgrimage centers for the whole Sumerian world, is this particular temple. So what we're looking at is one of the focal points for Mesopotamian religion and learning just through good old-fashioned dirt archaeology, learning new things about how religious landscapes and religious places functioned uh, in people's lives. And that's amazing. And obviously, they haven't been digging while COVID's been on, but are they, are they, do they have plans for more excavations there? Oh, absolutely. It's an ongoing project. I mean, one of the, the fascinating things about it is we knew about this temple of Ningirsu uh, for many reasons. We didn't quite know where it was. We knew roughly where it was, but it hadn't really been excavated before, although Tello itself had been dug by French archaeologists pretty comprehensively in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But there's a very famous statue in the Louvre, and it shows one of the old kings of um, the Sumerian kings sort of standing up, holding out what looks like a kind of... Um, iPad or something. What that is, is an architectural plan of this holy, holy, holy temple to Ningirsu. And it shows, I mean, it is literally the blueprints. It shows that it shows how the how it looks and everything. And on the bottom, there looks to be a scale bar, but no one has been able to quite figure out how that scale bar works. Sebastian, with a friend of his, and I suspect several bottles of whiskey, one night worked out that it, it works as a system of ratios. And so suddenly they were able to determine that if this, this scale bar wasn't a literal scale, but was actually a scale of ratios, they could work out the dimensions of this temple pretty well. And that was really important because part of the BM excavations nicked the edge of what could be the temple. And Sebastian had a theory that, well, if that edge was that we got on in the ground corresponded to that edge on these architectural blueprints of the statue in the Louvre, then we could use this ratio scale bar to work out where the rest of the temple was. And he did. And you know how Indiana Jones said X never ever marks a spot? Well, it did because the temple's there and Sebastian has been able to do that. And so that's what the British Museum has been working on over the last few years with, with Iraqi colleagues. And it is the most fascinating project. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And this leads nicely into our next question from Yvonne, who asks, is it possible to work as a volunteer on an excavation location, for example, in Iraq? Yvonne, it is possible to work as an archaeological volunteer. Alas, it's not possible to work on an archaeological as an archaeological volunteer in Iraq, simply because that it's quite difficult to run projects in what is considered by the Foreign Office to be a war zone, uh, and so the insurance premiums, etc., are really high. But don't despair, because there are several archaeological projects that take volunteers. Usually, they take uh, what's called a paying volunteer, and this is how kind of in the modern world a lot of archaeological projects actually run. So what they do is they have a core staff of trained archaeologists operating out of some university or museum. But in order to supplement the project and to to get it funding, they then take paying volunteers who come along and join the, the excavation for three or four weeks. And they dig alongside under the directions of the archaeologists doing real archaeological work on real archaeological sites. So I cut my archaeological teeth on, a, on an amazing site in Jordan called Pella that was excavated or still is excavated by the University of Sydney. 
And I know that the Pella project has been taking volunteers for oh, almost two decades now, I think. There are a couple of other digs that Sydney University runs that takes volunteers, one in Uzbekistan and one in Cyprus. But there are many, many others, um, particularly run out of, of North America, that, that take volunteers. You may have to pay for the privilege, but you're not going to have more, any more fun than that. It is so cool to go and do that for a few weeks. Uh, and you, you're part of an archaeological team. You have the best experience of your life. And as one archaeologist said memorably, archaeology is simply the most fun you can have with your pants on. And I think he's absolutely right. I agree. And I also think it's the best job in the world because you get to mess around in the dirt and find amazing stuff. Yeah. You know, what's not to like, basically? I was digging at Pella uh, several years ago and I had two lovely volunteers in my trench. And sometimes you get what's a, a pit. This is a, a areas where someone's dug a hole, put something in and then filled the hole back in. And if you're an archaeologist who knows your salt, you should be able to work out where those pits are from the different soil texture, different soil colour, all this sort of stuff. I was digging outside a Canaanite temple and I'd come across one of these pits. So the two volunteers working with me in my trench, I had them digging out that pit for me. They were doing a fabulous job and I'll, I'll never forget. One of them said, uh, Jamie, there's a sword here. And I thought she was exaggerating. More fool me, because she had trailed it off and then lying perfectly preserved in this pit, obviously an offering to the gods outside the temple. There was a long line of green bronze with a bronze hilt at the end. And by the end of the day, she'd done a really lovely job, actually, uncovering that sword. And it was a, a fantastic find. Oh, fantastic. That would just be wonderful as a volunteer, wouldn't it, to, oh, to do anyone. that? For anyone. Yeah, just... Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. We also have a question from another WHE reader called Brennan, and he would like to know, have you ever been presented with an artefact that confounds you? Good question, Brennan. More often than I'd care to admit, to be honest, is the, the answer. <laughs> I'll give you an example, not from the British Museum, but from some work I was doing in a museum, uh, the National Museum of Afghanistan in Kabul a few years ago. I was working in the storerooms with some uh, colleagues on an international project alongside some of our Afghan colleagues. And we had to catalogue a whole bunch of artefacts from a crate. And we, one of my Afghan colleagues pulled out, uh, it was made in ceramic, what looked like a funnel, but I couldn't, it was kind of weird. So it was circular ceramic, sort of, I don't know, maybe 20 centimetres in diameter, and like a funnel tapering down to a, a small point. And instead of going through to a hollow tube, kind of filled into a small, really shallow collection tank, like a, like a tray you would put in at the bottom of the oven to catch grease dripping or something. It didn't really make any sense because you couldn't, clearly it was for liquid, but, you know, if you're harvesting olive oil or making wine or something, you were not going to get much liquid out of that. And also the opening of the funnel was quite large, that it, it kind of didn't make sense. I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know what it was. It came from a, an Islamic period site, but that didn't really help me. And we were staying while we were working there at um, an archaeological institute run by the French and so that evening, I took a few photographs of this on my mobile phone. And that evening, after dinner and a few bottles of wine had been drunk, I showed these photographs to a colleague of mine who is a specialist in Islamic archaeologist. And he went, oh, yes, I know exactly what that is. That is something that we know from the textual sources, and he's also seen this from archaeological sources, that you put under the cot or cradle of a small child who might wet the bed, and it's a collection tank or, well... People wetting the bed as little kids. Brennan, in a million years, I would never have come up with that solution. Sometimes you just need you just need to know. That's a, that's fantastic, isn't it? And I, and I think um, yes, 
how should I say this? All the best theories come out after a couple of bottles of wine, don't they? Oh, as absolutely. Well. And Brennan actually has a second part to his question, which he says, what can we do as history lovers to alleviate trafficking of artifacts? Yeah, with that question, Brennan's really put his finger on a huge issue and I'm sure everyone who follows this website is aware of, and that is the trafficking of antiquities. Trafficking of antiquities means the illegal sale of antiquities you know, across international borders. And that's caused by looting of archaeological sites. I mean, not just looting from museums, such as the Iraq Museum or Kabul Museum, but also the illicit digging of archaeological sites. And there's been sites I've been working on in Jordan, for example, where I've, I've come across tombs that were looted the night before. You just see bones strewn around, objects broken, and the loss of information, the loss of cultural heritage is heartbreaking. What can we do? Well, the, the only thing that drives looters to do this is the fact that these objects can be sold. And if they are no longer given a commercial value, then they can't be sold. There are legal barriers to buy them, but often these aren't enforced or people aren't really aware of them. And sometimes people don't really take them that seriously. So the best thing that we can do is simply not to buy antiquities. That means not going onto eBay, not going onto some of the major auction houses that sell these sorts of things that come from suspicious provenance because if we're buying them, then people will continue to loot them, which means, of course, that archaeology will continue to be destroyed. Yeah, because I don't think people really appreciate that, as you said earlier, a lot of the value of every artifact is, in fact, its context for us. And once that context is gone, you lose so much knowledge about that thing. I mean, the trade in illegal antiquities is huge. Some people put it larger than being the trade in, in, in illegal firearms. Really? It depends on which sources you read. But, mm. I mean, it is enormous. And that's yeah. a real problem. And so Brennan is absolutely right. Don't buy stuff. That's the best way. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Dr. Fraser. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's get back <laughs> on to, uh, to potties for kids in the middle of the night. Excellent. Actually, I just want to touch back on your time in Kabul because I remember a wonderful article that you wrote for Timeless Travels magazine and it was all about the Corolla philosophies. <laughs> and I wonder if you could just share that with our with our listeners because I, I read the article again before we talked this afternoon and it, it's, uh, it is so funny. It's really good. So I was really lucky in 2013, 2014, for about six months, I was working with a joint University of Chicago and National Museum of, uh, of Afghanistan project uh, in Kabul. And the Kabul Museum, the National Museum, really suffered during the Afghan Civil War and then again underneath the Taliban regime. And of its, we don't really know the size of its collection, but I mean, of its quite significant collection, like the largest collection of Central Asian antiquities anywhere in the world, a huge proportion were looted, destroyed, or damaged. I mean, the, the museum itself fell onto the front lines of the fighting in the mid-90s. It was a real problem. So by the time that the curators could get back into the museum and start to sort things out, I mean, it didn't have a roof, it didn't have water, it didn't have power. Looters had ransacked all the through the storeroom. So imagine if you have, you know, some heavy metal rock band to stay the night. That's the room the next morning kind of looked like the museum at that that time, I think. And so what this project was doing was basically creating a, a digital catalogue of everything that was left so that there was that baseline for the Afghan curators to continue to preserve, conserve, research and exhibit 
the collections, these extraordinary collections going forward. So while we were there, I was staying in the French Institute, a place called DAFA, D-A-F-A, which is on one side of the city. The museum is on the other. And Kabul has some really terrible traffic. So for every morning, for about an hour, and every afternoon, for about an hour, our driver, a lovely, lovely man, um, would pick us up, me, a French archaeologist and an American archaeologist that I was working with, and would battle through the traffic to get to the museum. And I mean, I hate commuting. I commute on the, the London Tube into the museum here, and I hate it. This commute was amazing because the sights and the sounds and the, the vignettes out the window, I mean, honestly, it felt like we we're just sitting in the car still while Afghanistan pushed itself past the windows. Uh, and one of those things was the Corolla philosophies. And there, I don't know why, but for some reason, there's uh, people who, who own a car, particularly taxis, put in English small kind of aphorisms on the back of their windshields. And uh, I haven't thought about this for a few years, Fiona, so I'm smiling as I'm trying to recollect. But these are great. These are sort of, uh, they always get it wrong, perhaps, by one or two critical letters. You know, rinse of Kabul instead of prints of Kabul. There's a very sinister one. I'm the one who is digging your grave. Aphorisms like this. Um, and I used to collect them in a little notebook. Uh, it was great. I mean, you've got to collect something. Corolla philosophies, as I call them, they're a pretty good thing to collect. And did it feel very dangerous when you were working there? Did it feel dangerous? No, it didn't feel dangerous, but maybe that's a foolhardy thing to say. We certainly weren't the target of any terrorist activity, but of course the danger is just happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in that period that I was there, Kabul is certainly a much more dangerous city now than it was back in 2013, 2014. In the six months that I was there, there were... Uh, two major incidents. One was uh, a Lebanese restaurant. One that we'd frequented a few times actually was the subject of uh, gunman activity and uh, an explosion and everyone who was inside that restaurant was killed. It was a real tragedy. And one of the main hotels, a hotel called the Serena Hotel on Nauru's the New Year, a couple of gunmen managed to smuggle in guns through the security cordon and shoot I think about 11 people inside the hotel. And there was also a, a gunfight very close to the museum where we were working, surrounding one of the, the, electron, the election officers in the lead up to the democratic elections in 2014. None of, I mean, I didn't feel in danger. None of it was directed at us, but it doesn't take much to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then, you know, you can be in the tube at the wrong place at the wrong time or a bus in London and the same thing. Certainly, you have to be careful. Yeah, that's true. Because I was going to say, though, did you were you able to go out and visit any sites when you were there? Or did you mostly have to just go between work and, and home, so to speak? We were fairly limited in where we could go. But we were allowed on, to accompany one larger delegation, Afghan delegation, to a phenomenal site called Mez Ainak. If you don't know Mez Ainak, it's spelled M-E-S, the new word Ainak, A-Y-N-A-K. It is a brilliant site, it's a huge site, sprawls across the hills of Logar province, so it's sort of um, south of Kabul, southeast of Kabul. And this is the world's, it sits on top of the world's largest unexploited deposit of copper. So a few years ago, I think this has kind of run its course now, but certainly a few years ago, a Chinese mining company had invested a lot of money in Afghanistan to exploit this copper deposit. The problem was they were the first kind of exploiting this copper deposit because in the, the early Buddhist periods, it was being used and kind of for trade of copper along the Silk Road. And the Silk Road was really this powerhouse for the movement of 
commodities like copper and religions like Buddhism. And you hear of this site, you see both operating at once. And so this site, apart from the industrial sort of mine shafts and processing centers, is also the home for stupa after stupa after stupa and Buddhist shrine after Buddhist shrine after Buddhist shrine. Phenomenal sort of molded clay statues all just lying in these sort of derelict collapsing monasteries and stupas that, that await excavation. It's a tremendously important one because, of course, a lot of it would, would have been destroyed should the the copper mine go ahead. So I was so fortunate to be able to go and visit the excavations at Mez Einak. I've never seen anything like it. Incredible stuff. That's fantastic. Afghanistan was always on my list to to go to, obviously, when we were working in the Middle East. And, and we always thought, yeah, one day we'll get there. And, you know, there's no rush. <laughs> same <laughs> same with, with Iraq as well, actually, in Baghdad. And, and yeah, it's not going to happen for a while now, sadly. Okay, now, before I let you go, we've just got a few more things I'd like to talk to you about. And that I would like to take you to your archaeological spies, because I know this is an area of interest to you. And you wrote a fabulous article for Times Travels, again, on Palmer, a man called Palmer. And then you said today you're working on him as well. So what new research are you doing about Mr. Palmer? And can you tell everybody about him? Okay, 1882, middle of summer, a an English Don from Cambridge, kind of an effete academic, disguised as a Bedouin, goes off into the Sinai Desert with 3,000 pounds of gold sovereigns hidden in his saddlebag. And that man and his entourage and the gold were never seen alive again. And it's a cracking story of sort of daring do and frankly daring don't on the cusp of British Empire. So 1882, what's happening is that the Brits and the French have kind of almost about to invade Egypt for a whole variety of reasons, but Egypt's been uh, subject to a, a nationalist uprising by a guy called Urbi Pasha, basically because he wants control of the Suez Canal, which had opened re- you know, only a few years beforehand. And then he defaulted on debt to these European powers, even though Egypt falls technically under the Ottoman Empire, ruled from Istanbul, the Brits and the French are about to muscle their way in. So it's a real tense period. The Brits are concerned that should they invade, that Bedouin forces will align themselves with their Ottoman overlords and attack the Suez Canal. So Palmer is sent off into the desert to buy off the Bedouin so that they won't attack the Suez Canal, stay out of the conflict. And Palmer was an academic in um, in Cambridge, he an Orientalist, meaning he spoke fluent Arabic and Hindustani and Persian and a whole range of different languages. He, he translated the Quran into English. He translated uh, the New Testament into Arabic, this sort of stuff. So he was quite young. He was only in his early 30s. Um, he was quite an able, competent sort of guy, and no one more than Palmer thought just how able and competent he was. The problem with Palmer is that perhaps he wasn't as able and competent as he and he thought that he spoke Arabic so well that he could blend in so perfectly that no one would ever know that he was an Englishman. Problem was that, I mean, Palmer wasn't fooling anyone but himself. And he had made an agreement with a, a Bedouin, well, who he thought was a Bedouin sheikh, but who actually was fooling Palmer as much as Palmer thought he was fooling the Bedouin sheikh. He made an agreement that this guy would, would act as his guard, that he would rendezvous with this guy out in the Sinai. Um, and this guy's name was Meta Abu Sufi. Meta Abu Sufi would turn up with an entourage of about 15 armed Bedouins, act as an escort out into the center of the Sinai where he would meet with the, um, the Bedouin chieftains, 
gold would change hands and they would all deferentially agree that, of course, they would never deign to attack the Suez Canal on the Brits. They, of course, thought that actually he was an, an Englishman disguised as a better one that everyone saw through instantly with 3,000 pounds of gold there for the taking. And we know in hindsight they'd already agreed to align themselves with the Turks anyway. So Palmer and his entourage was led into a sort of a narrow wadi as an ambush. His alarm bells, Fiona, should have started going when he, he liaised with Meta Abu Sufia. And instead of turning up with the sort of an entourage of 15 armed guys, he turned up with nothing more than his teenage nephew. But Palmer thought, what? Well, We'll do this anyway, and off he goes. The first time they sit down for dinner, he realises that he's brought a whole lot of canned food but forgot to bring a can opener. I mean, this was a complete... Um, I'm trying to use a polite word here. This was a complete uh, poorly conceived expedition from the outset. But Meta Abu Sufi leads Palmer into a, um, an ambush, and then Palmer and his colleagues are stripped of their clothes, walked up to the top of a cliff, and uh, executed, pushed off, and, the, and they die. We don't really know what happens then, except the Brits. I mean, the Sinai is known as this as being a land of whispers, and these whispers start to get back in, to the British authorities, particularly Kitchener at this time, who have by now have taken control of Cairo, and they don't know what's happened to this guy that was sent off on this clandestine undercover mission. And these whispers start to come out of the Sinai that Palmer had been captured, that Palmer had been taken prisoner, that Palmer was walking the desert, delirious and mad. Palmer had been killed, no one knew. So they sent out a rescue expedition led by a guy called Charles Warren. Charles Warren was a, a more soldierly guy, soldierly guy who worked for the Royal Engineers. He'd been doing a lot of archaeological work in Jerusalem, actually, for a British institution called the Palestine Exploration Fund. I'm sitting in the, in the library of the Palestine Exploration Fund right now as we speak overlooking the Thames. But uh, Warren had been passed over for this expedition at the beginning, and his nose was firmly out of joint. Instead of picking a soldier for this expedition, they'd picked this sort of effete academic. He was going to do things properly by God. And so Warren goes out with an entourage of about 150 armed men and eventually through a whole lot of daring do and skullduggery and, um, well, let's just say intense questioning of locals, manages to find the kill site and the remains of Palmer and his team and of Palmer's diary, which gives us an account of his last few days, but not... Fiona, the £3,000 worth of gold sovereigns, which had disappeared into the ether. And probably bought a lovely uh, flock of sheep for a few people, I imagine, <laughs> well, I would imagine and, so. and goats. Now, when I wrote that article for you about Palmer for Timeless Travel, and that was several years ago, since then there have been two significant books that have come out on the Palmer expedition. Uh, one of them is called These Chivalrous Brothers. It's by a guy called... Donald Sunderland. And the other one is about uh, one of Palmer's offsiders who was on the expedition, a guy called William Gill. And that's called Gill, uh, Captain Gill's Walking Stick. That's by a guy called Saul Kelly. And these provide some new, in interesting new insights. And I'm, I'm researching the Palmer story and refreshing my memory because there's a conference coming up that's joint hosted by the Palestine Exploration Fund and the Egyptian Exploration Fund on the Sinai. And I'm talking a bit about the Palmer story for that. So I'm sitting here in the Ground Zero of the Palmer Story, which is the Palestine Exploration Fund Library, uh, just doing some research. Well, fantastic. Can you just tell us a little bit about the PEF, the Palestine Exploration Fund? So the Palestine Exploration Fund, the PEF, is a tremendously important research institution that was founded uh, in 1865. Uh, and it was founded with the express aims of researching and investigating 
the landscape, the archaeology, the flora, the fauna, the, the demographics of the Holy Lands. So Israel, Palestine, Jordan in particular. And it funded and supported and collected uh, materials from dozens of expeditions into this sort of area. And the institution is tremendously important, really, because it also uh, underwrote some of the first geographical surveys of the region, the Survey of Western Palestine and then later the Survey of Eastern Palestine. And these are the first really thorough scientific maps based on, on a grid system that the PEF set out. Some of the most important research ever undertaken in the Southern Levant, really. So the historical archives, which document research in all aspects of this, lands, of this landscape over the last 150 years, are still collected and curated and looked after and researched in the modern offices of the Palestine Exploration Fund, uh, which now sit on Greenwich overlooking the Thames uh, in South London. And, I mean, I talk about going into the British Museum storerooms and, and the shelves humming and buzzing with, with untold stories. The Palestine Exploration Fund is like that on steroids because there is so much interesting historical information here that's just waiting to have its thread pulled and then uh, narrative and stories and facts after facts come tumbling out. Palmer is just one of many. And can anybody visit the PEF or do you have to be a member to gain access to these wonderful things? Uh, anyone can, can visit the PEF. You, you might need to make an appointment with the Executive Secretary, a, a lovely lady called Felicity Cobbing. But it's it's a research institution that is open to anyone to come and use the facilities. But I in, strongly encourage people to become a member of the PEF because then you get its journal, its magazine, its news, uh, access to lectures. So this sort of, you know, like Palmer, these sorts of stories are being told often and well by different scholars at different times. And the best way to, to really learn about them is to become a member. Thank you. Okay, we come now to a question from Patrick Muell. He asks, historically, which group of people are associated with the earliest civilizations? Uh, Patrick, I think you know what I'm going to say here. And I'm going to give you such an archaeological answer. That is, well, how do you define civilization? And it's a really interesting issue because we have, as archaeologists, defined civilization quite well. I mean, a very famous archaeologist... I'm sure everyone on this website has heard of, ex-Australian Sydney Uni, actually, a guy called Gordon Child. He gave a kind of checklist of about 10 things. And one of those main things was the development of a writing system. So if you take that as the index for the earliest civilization, then really the earliest civilization is the ancient Sumerians of southern Iraq who developed cuneiform or just a little bit earlier than hieroglyphics appear in Egypt. Although, frankly, you stick can I form an expert and a hieroglyphic expert in a small room, ask them this question and, you know, watch how many limbs get ripped off in the discussions that follow. The problem with that is that there are civilizations such as the Inca, for example, that developed what is quite clearly a complex, sophisticated civilization. They didn't even have a writing system. So this comes back to the problem of, of how we define a civilization. The Incas example, of course, they had a system of knotted string as an accounting system, but it's not really a written script. But does that mean they weren't a civilization? Of course not. So it kind of comes back to how our discipline as archaeologists has been shaped. And it's been shaped in part because some of the earliest places we've looked at civilizations have been Mesopotamia. And so we've gone, well, Mesopotamian civilizations look like this. Therefore, that is what civilization is like. 
And that logic is like saying all swans are white because every swan we've seen is white. And all it takes is one expedition to, say, the coast of Western Australia in the 1600s. And suddenly you realise, well, all swans aren't white. There are black swans as well. So that our previous listing of criteria of what makes a swan, A, it must be white, is completely wrong. We just haven't been looking broad enough. It's the same issue when we get to civilization, because we say, well, Mesopotamian civilizations have monumental architecture, centralized urban sites, systems of writing. And then we get to places like the Incas, which might not have a writing system, and we go, ah, not all swans are white. Some swans look different. How we then define civilization becomes a much, much more contextual and idiosyncratic exercise, I think. And I mean, look at, say, some of the modern research coming out of China, the early civilizations, which we really know very little about, changing the way we think about these sorts of issues. So what's the earliest? It's going to come down to how you define it. But if you define it as someone with a writing system, someone with monumental architecture, a system with centralized control, where people can bring in resources, say surplus grain, and have some person, a priest or a king or a queen, decide on then who gets that, well, those systems, the earliest would be Mesopotamia. That's how we define it. So it's kind of narrowing our field of view a little bit. Sorry, Patrick, it's not a straightforward answer, but neither is it a straightforward question. Fantastic. Thank you, Jamie. And finally, what are you working on at the moment at the museum? Can we look forward to any new fabulous exhibitions coming up? (laughs) Well, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment goes back to that statue I was speaking about before, that uh, Hittite goddess called Kababa. So that statue, as I described it uh, when I first saw it with, with my Turkish colleague Hassan, was down in the basement in the storeroom under arched, the Victorian arched uh, vaults. One thing we've actually just done is brought that statue up into the Levant Gallery. It hasn't been on public display for oh, decades and decades and decades. So after COVID, when the museum opens its doors and you can come into the Levant Gallery, every single person listening to this podcast must quickly get to London and come into the Levant Gallery, the British Museum, and come and look at Kubaba because she's finally on public display again, and deservedly so. It's a phenomenal statue. And so at the moment, I'm researching on on that statue and how the head in Turkey relates to the statue here in London and how we can use use some new sort of digital ways of revivifying Kubaba once again so that we can see the statue complete even if we can't see it physically complete as it once was. Well, Jamie, it's been wonderful to talk to you today and thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Fiona.